let's take our Bibles and turn to 2 Chronicles 7. 2 Chronicles 7. This is the third week in our vertical series. We're being called to a life that is unmistakably loving the Lord, that, that has no equivocation. What does it look like when we love God with all of our hearts? And we're, we're trying to put that as a visual and trying to explain uh, how that will look. And so far, we've studied the need for personal altars, which means that our lives are completely sacrificed and dedicated to the Lord, that those altars stay strong and unbroken, and where there's disrepair, where altars are starting to crumble apart, whether it's in our personal devotion or our marriage or our parenting or our work or our service to the Lord, whatever it is, wherever that altar is broken, we've got to build it back up. And then last week, we talked about worship, and we worship the Lord so wonderfully this morning, but we need to continue to be unrestrained and unbridled in, in expressing our joy to the Lord. Now, some of these truths have already kind of challenged us and, and made us feel a little bit uncomfortable, and we actually, as we said the first week, need to continue to pray that the Lord will do that, even though you want, I don't want to be uncomfortable in church. No, we need to be uncomfortable church. Every time we study the Word, we should be uncomfortable. Because the word is a two-edged sword and it divides asunder the heart and mind. So we need, to, we need to be stirred by the Lord. We need to be challenged by the Lord every time we open his word. And as disciples, we're not allowed to stay comfortable. We're not allowed to just, well, everything's great and I'm calm and, and I'm unburdened and I'm inspired and, and, and I'm just kind of, I'm kind of here. That's not how it works. Because when you're filled by the Holy Spirit of God, you're changed. When you study the word of God, you're motivated. When you worship the Lord, you're, in, you're, you're overwhelmed by his grace. As we sang a couple songs ago about the greatness of God. And when you look at the world, and boy, is this true right now. When you look at the world, you need to be burdened. We're burdened by what's going on in the, Lord, in the world. So this morning, we come to number three. Altars were first. Worship was second. And now we come to the outgrowth of the altars being built up and strong and the worship and praise of God, acknowledging who he is, recognizing who he is, and then worshiping him. The next outgrowth out of that will be prayer. Prayer. We want to pray. Why do we want to pray? We want to pray because we see that God is allowing us to come into his presence as his children. We talked about being adopted when we sang this morning, that we're his children. We're completely unworthy. We have no right to be there. There's nothing that we can claim, oh yes, Lord, I'm good enough and I can come to you. And, and No, there's, there's zero. There's none righteous. But God says, I will declare you righteous. I will transform you to be righteous and I will make you forever righteous. So because you've been changed, now you can come into my presence and you can have uninhibited access to me. What an amazing concept it is. You remember when Jesus died on the cross? As he died, what happened in the temple? The veil, that thick three-foot-wide curtain that, that hung between the holy place and the holy of holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was, where God's presence would come down and there was the mercy seat of God, and he would dispense mercy on the Day of Atonement. When Jesus died, that veil was open, and that wasn't a coincidence. It tore from top to bottom. There's no way anybody physically could have torn that curtain from top to bottom. And yet, here it is, opened up. And Jesus was saying, because of my death and because of my resurrection, you now have access as my children to the holy 
presence of God anytime you want. Now that is an unbelievable truth. And yet the ironic thing is it's the most neglected action of believers. It is the most neglected action of the body of believers. Prayer is underutilized, it's misunderstood, it's ignored, and it's forgotten more than it's utilized. And that is true of all of us. I don't think there's one person, and we have godly people in this room, there's not one person in this room who prays enough. We have this unbelievable resource from the Lord, and it's accessible 24-7 in any setting, in any circumstance, around any people, without any restriction. And yet we pray, don't we? We pray nervously and tentatively and we're hesitant to go to the Lord and we're not quite sure what to say. What is it that makes us insecure about prayer? Most of us are outgoing, friendly, happy people. We, we did the greeting time. I don't even know how to stop the greeting times anymore because we just keep talking. Everybody's hugging and visiting and talking. And it's like, all right, we, we do that with each other. We talk to each other. We greet each other. We fellowship with each other. We're very open. Here's what's going on in my life. Can you help me? And yet when it talked about coming to the Lord, we curl up like a turtle in the shell. And we don't quite know what to do. I've heard some of you are nervous about coming to prayer meeting because you might have to pray out loud. Do not, please, do not let that hinder you from coming Thursday night. I pray that our study this morning is not only going to make you less nervous about praying, and we won't force you to pray out loud. We're not going to say, here, lead this, if you're not comfortable with that. That's not the purpose. Not, the purpose is not to have a prayer meeting so everybody feels awkward. The purpose is to come and call on the name of the Lord. And this study needs to change our minds in the, in the 20, 30 minutes we have. And I'll keep it brief. We need to be stirred to pray. And this verse, 2 Chronicles seven fourteen, gives us the motivation to do that. It's probably the defining verse on prayer in the Bible in terms of calling believers to pray. Now, quick context. This was written after Solomon's temple was dedicated. And there is no higher point in Israel's history than 2 Chronicles 7. This is, the, this is the pinnacle. The Red Sea, yeah, that was great. Going into the Promised Land, that was great. Reforming as a nation, 1948, that was great. But there is no greater point in Israel's history than 2 Chronicles 7. And there won't be until Jesus returns and brings the nation back to itself and forgives them. And this event was so important and, 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 and so, so uh, valuable to the Lord that right at the start of the chapter, God works in a very uh, unique and powerful way. Look at verse 1 of chapter 7. When Solomon had finished praying, notice, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifice, and the glory of the Lord filled the house. The priests could not enter into the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. And all the sons of Israel, seeing the fire come down and the glory of the Lord upon the house, bowed down on the pavement with their faces to the ground, and they worshiped and gave praise to the Lord, saying, truly, he is good. Truly, his loving kindness is everlasting. Now, before we drop down to verse 14, and we'll do that in a minute, notice that there is a very, very, very important spiritual principle here. And the spiritual principle is that there is an unmistakable correlation. I write this down if you take notes. There is an unmistakable correlation between God's people praying 
and God's presence coming. Listen to that. There is an unmistakable correlation between God's people praying and God's presence coming. Now we know throughout scripture, God's gracious and he's loving and he's relational. He says, I abide in your praises. He says, when you draw close to me, I'll draw close to you. But there is nothing that causes the Lord to be present in our lives and in our church more than when we call on his name. And verses one and two say his presence was so powerful as Solomon prayed and the fire fell from heaven, this is shades of 1 King 18 and, and Elijah on Mount Carmel. When that happened, the priests who were supposed to minister in the temple, they couldn't even go in because the glory of God filled it. How differently would our view be of coming to church is if, as we are walking into the parking lot and we're coming in our car, click, click, you know, beep, beep, and we're walking in the presence. And we got about 30 yards from the building and we had to stop because there was no way we could go any farther because the glory of the Lord was so strong. Can you imagine that? I've been, uh, it has to be in the hundreds, maybe close to a thousand. I've been in hundreds of churches, hundreds. And there are very few churches, and I'm not trying to be critical here, I'm trying to be observational. There are very few churches where you walk up to the building and you go, the Lord's here. The, the presence of God is so manifest. Now, I have been in churches that are like that. I've been in churches where I've walked in and I wanted to go right to my knees because I knew the presence of God was there. And it was so strong and so powerful that, that I almost wanted to turn around and walk away. And yet it was so alluring. And you know what the key was with those churches? They center on prayer. They center on prayer. And I got to tell you, when you get into that situation, when you know God's presence and you can feel it, and I'm not being mystical here, you can feel the presence of God. It just awes you and it humbles you. And you go, I'm unworthy. I have spent most of those services that I've been in those churches weeping. Just weeping. Just, just I can't stop crying. Like when, when... Adam was talking and Jamie was praying. I'm, I'm thinking of my kids and my wife and the, the ministry that they give. And I started to tear up. I'm an emotional person. But I'm telling you, God is my judge. I was weeping. I couldn't stop. Like, I'm embarrassed. I'm crying so hard. But I'm just, God's here and I can't, I can't do it. When God's people pray. Listen now. Look at the verses. When God's people pray, his presence down. And God says, you, Christian, have that resource. I promise it to you. So how much and how fervently do you use it? The pastor of one of those churches that I was talking about said this, we are not New Testament Christians if we don't have a prayer life. Do we believe that? Do, do, do our lives prove that? Unfortunately, I think the answer is probably no for most Christians, and the answer is no for most churches, and I believe the greatest reason for that, here's the, here's the main thought this morning, the greatest reason for that is we are simply not desperate for the Lord. Now, you may say, well, that's kind of an extreme word on October 30th, 2016, and, and you know, we're desperate, like that's so, that's so beyond, no, 
unless our hearts are desperate for the Lord, unless we think of that in extreme terms, our hearts will stay dull because we live in an extremely carnal culture and we face extremely strong spiritual opposition and, and, and we face extreme criticism when we stand for the Lord and it's going to get worse. So how can our response be anything but extremely committed and extremely passionate and extremely desperate? There are going to be so many temptations in our lives that are going to try to make us dull and indifferent. And if we don't fight them, we're going to lose the battle. The disciples in Acts, when they face those strong attacks, when the, when the Pharisees and the scribes are saying, don't you ever, don't you dare name the name of Jesus. You know what? We're going to put you in jail. What did the disciples do? Did they, did they form a subcommittee? Did they appeal to the government? Did they go to Caesar and say, hey, these Jews are being nasty to us? Did they go to the culture and try to rally the troops and go on social media? No. What did they do? They got together, and what did they do? Tell me. They prayed. When Peter's in jail, the church prayed, and an angel appears in the middle of the night and says, come on, Peter. Peter's like, what? Hey, door's open. All the jailers are asleep. You just walk out. Peter goes up to the house, knocks on the door, and a girl comes to the door. Peter, what are you doing here? And in the background, Peter can hear the groans of the people praying. How do we build that desperation? How do we build that hunger for the Lord? And then how do we live and, and trust and minister with the same conviction that the, and, and the same power that the disciples have next? Well, quickly, we already know some of the answers, right? We've got to give our lives to Christ and, and, and trust in Him as Savior. We have to fully reject sin. We have to yield to the Spirit, put on the new life that He gave us. Listen, there's no way that our hearts will be right so that we're ready to be stirred if those conditions are met. That, that's basic Christianity, put off sin. We shouldn't have to say that every week. We need to put off sin. We need to reject sin. We need to reject what the world's offering. We need to stop living a double life. We shouldn't ever have to say that again. We should know that. And how are our hearts going to get stirred? How, how, well, if, if those conditions aren't met, then forget about it. And that's why so many people struggle with spiritual anemia because they are not willing to let go of the past life and completely give themselves to God. And the same thing holds true for prayer, both in terms of the conditions and the outcome. If we come to God hesitantly, well, I don't know, Lord, and I'm kind of, I, I want to trust you, but I'm not really sure, and, and, and I guess I need to pray, but I don't know, I'm going to look at my other eyes. Listen, if you come to prayer like that, it's going to be anemic. But if you come to God and say, you're the God of the universe, you formed the stars in the sky, your son delivered me from sin, and I'm adopted by you, praise you, God, now here's, here's everything, it's all laid out before you, my life is yours. You pray that way, God will. So how do we move forward? How do we get away from dullness and get to desperation? Well, let's look at the verse real quick because God gives us the answer in one verse. One verse. Look at it, verse 14. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then, it's an if-then, it's conditional, then, I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Now, I debated doing like a six-week series on this because there's so much here, but 
I want to just be very foundational this morning and just highlight four things that we need to be naturally desperate for as believers. Four things, and I want you to notice how these four things are connected to prayer. The Lord himself is speaking directly to his people, and he says, you and I, believer, Christian, we should be hungry for these things, and the way to get more and more hungry is to use the catalyst of prayer because God responds to prayer. So I want you to write these four things down. Even if you don't take notes, it doesn't matter to me. I want you to write these four things down. Things that we need to pray. Say, God, I need to be desperate for these things. I need to be hungry for these things. You tell me to hunger and thirst after righteousness. Well, I need to hunger for these things. And if you're feeling dull this morning, lifeless, indifferent, whatever word you want to use, you just kind of are, are not there spiritually. I promise you, you start praying for these things this week and God will start to work. Number one, we need to be desperate for the Lord's presence. We need to be desperate for the Lord's presence. The hunger will be most directly proportional to how much we love the Lord and how much we're surrendered to Him. That's why the Lord says, my people must first, first thing, they must humble themselves and pray and seek my face. You say, why is that important? Because that puts you in a posture of dependence. Lord, I need to humble myself before you. That means pride, self-sufficiency, self-control, all the things we talk about all the time. Those need to be sacrificed on the altar that we repaired in the first study. Now, Lord, I'm going to sacrifice for you. And I come to you, not with arrogance, not with my arms crossed, not you owe me. Come on, God. Not, not that. Position of humility and dependence. We'll only do that if we love him. And we'll want to be in his presence. And we go to his presence and we can be confident that he will not abuse us. We can be confident that he will minister to us. We can be confident that he will show grace to us. And the more we spend time in his presence, the more we will not want to leave. But if our minds are divided and our hearts are hardened, listen, guilt creates separation. That's why confession is so important in prayer. Don't come into prayer, Paul Rhodes, and start saying, Lord, I need this. Oh, I'm desperate. I have problems. I Lord, you got to solve this. What are you doing? Come on, Lord. Listen, when we approach God that way, God just kind of goes, really? But we come and say, Lord, I'm worthless, and I have sinned, and Lord, I'm going to be specific. Here's what I did. Here's what I did. I lied. I lusted. I swore. I was angry with my wife. I didn't talk nicely to my kids. I haven't been a good. Listen, don't, don't just pray, God, forgive me my sin. Be specific. That means we're owning up to it. When we do that, the separation is destroyed and we draw close. So we need to be desperate for the Lord's presence. Second, we need to be desperate for the Lord's mercy and forgiveness. This is a very underrated truth. The enemy works very hard to convince us of the lie that we don't need to be pure before the Lord, that, that any sin and any rebellion doesn't need immediate cleansing and permanent abstention. And, oh, it's fine, Paul. You're good. Come on. You don't. God loves you. Didn't God say he forgives your sin forever? So why do you have to need, keep me confess? Really? Come on. Is, is God's grace good or not? You can be a little bit impure. It, it's okay. God, God loves you. 
See, the enemy uses the truth about God to lie to us. God loves you. He should forgive you. You shouldn't have to keep confessing. I thought Christ took care of that on the cross. Maybe Christ did take care of that on the cross. Did you ever think about that, Paul? We need to hunger and be desperate for God's mercy. Yes, we're forgiven forever. Yes, there's no denying that truth. But I don't know about you, but I continue to sin. I sinned last night. I sinned this morning. I will sin this afternoon. I'm not being a prophet. I'm being a realist. I will sin tonight. My anger will get the best of me as I'm driving today. I will get uptight with my kids about whatever that I shouldn't get uptight with them about. I'll get frustrated. I may look at a woman the wrong way. I may say something that's not edifying. Who knows? It's anything goes with me. Now, hopefully and prayerfully, that's less and less every day. But when we sin, don't wait. Get right to the throne of grace and say, God, I am sorry. Change my heart. I don't want to do this anymore. How do I know that's true? Because look at what he calls us to do. He says, if, tell me who he's talking to. Is he talking to the world here? Who's he talking to? Tell me. My people, us, his disciples. What does he say? Hey, my disciples, turn from your what? Tell me. Wicked ways. What? Wait, wait. I'm a believer and I'm forgiven. Really? Are you perfect? I'm not. I still have some wicked ways. Hopefully less and less as the day to his appearing approaches. But, but I still have some wicked ways. And he says, you need to turn from those. You know, we spend a lot of time being critical of culture and people openly promoting sin. And we're burned. Oh, look at the, what the world's become. But the Lord says, look at yourself first. You believer, you disciple, are you conforming to the world? Are you living wickedly? Or are you doing anything? Because wickedness is anything that contradicts the word of God and dishonors Jesus. And that's far more expansive than we think, and we've got to be very honest with it. So we need to be desperate for the mercy and forgiveness of God. Third, we need to be desperate for the Lord's answers and his leading and his help. Notice the order in verse 14. I will hear from heaven when, once, once, the first part of the verse is fulfilled. See, a lot of times we get frustrated in prayer because we keep asking the Lord for his help and for his answers and his leading, and all we get is silence. And the devil uses that to say, well, God doesn't care, but we know better. So we're still a little annoyed. God, why aren't you answering? God, why aren't you working? I keep praying about this. And then if we really let ourselves go, we come to the point and say, what's the point of prayer? You tell me I need to pray. God tells me I need to pray, and I've prayed, and nothing's happened. Well, we've probably been too impatient. We've probably given up too quickly, but that's beside the point. Prayer is powerful, and this promise is definitive. If my people will humble themselves and seek my face and pray, then I will hear. There are prerequisites. After you humble yourselves before me, and after you admit your need for me, and after you turn from your sin, not just for the moment so you can get your answer, but a full-time conviction. After you do those things, then I promise by my word, which is unbreakable, I will hear you. But don't get the order wrong. Don't think you can come and expect stuff from me 
Before you do that, you can't ignore the prerequisite and think the promise will be fulfilled. And I think if we would start more prayer with just confession and asking God for his mercy, we'd hear the voice of the Lord a lot quicker. Fourth, we need to be desperate for the Lord's comfort and power. This comes at the end. Notice the order. Order is important. Then I will hear from heaven. Then I will forgive their sin and heal their land. When God sees the sincerity of our denial of self and our surrender to him, he is absolutely unequivocally willing to forgive. When he sees us be hungry to end our self-sufficiency and to reject sin and to place ourselves in his hands, he will provide healing and strength. Don't forget, this was originally spoken to Israel and Israel was just flirting with disobedience when Saul became king, remember? They chose the wrong guy, the one who was handsome and good-looking and popular, and, and they started to flirt with sin, and then God said, I'm done with Saul, I'm going to bring David in. And David was a man after God's heart, and the nation was strong, and everything was great, and their enemies cowered before them, and then Solomon came into power, and God gave Solomon wisdom because he asked for the right thing. And then God said, Solomon, you're going to build my temple. And everything's on the rise. And 2 Chronicles 7 is, is the pinnacle point. And then Solomon starts to look at other women and gets a thousand women and starts to worship their gods. And then he turns from God and the nation divides. And Rehoboam goes to, Jer to Judah and Jeroboam goes to Israel. And every king of Israel is wicked. And almost every king of Judah is wicked. And then the nation goes into two different captivities and doesn't come back till 60 years ago. Their hearts turn. They're about to enter an unprecedented era of rebellion under Solomon. And the missing part is that they turned away from the Lord. This is as much a promise as a warning to the people. Listen, if you will humble yourselves and pray and seek my face and turn from sin, I will be there. But you're not going to. I don't think there's a better verse for our nation this morning. Imagine if God's church this morning revived and obeyed verse 14. Imagine if our country obeyed verse 14. We certainly would not be in the horrible position we're in this morning. The Lord says in Psalm 50, call on me in the day of trouble. How many believe that we're in a day of trouble right now? We need to be desperate for the Lord because these are desperate times. And if we're not stirred to pray now, honestly... I don't know what will. The literal future of our country is at stake in nine days. The literal future, believe this, of our religious freedom, the lives of millions and millions of unborn children, the definition of marriage, our physical safety, the economic future of our children is at stake in nine days. More than ever before, this is an election on policy. So much has been made about the personalities and the character. Listen, they're both rotten. They're both rotten. But we're not electing a pastor. We're electing a president. And we've got to figure out which one is going to defend the policies that honor God.
because the devil is trying to grab this nation once and for all. Are we going to be desperate for the Lord or are we going to be sure of ourselves? God's instruction is unmistakable. Humble yourselves and pray and seek me. The problem is, and let me finish with this, our culture has absolutely no propensity to do that. So it has to start with the church. Remember, it's my people that have to do that. So are we, you and me, Harbor Rock Tabernacle, are we desperate and hungry for prayer? We have prayer meetings Thursday night, five days before the election. How full will this room be? How much will we cry out to the Lord? Because that's the meaning of the word prayer in the Old Testament. It means to cry out and ask for help. And the Christian that lives vertically and the church that lives vertically does that all the time. Let me give you two quotes. This is not a guilt trip. You know me. Let me give you two quotes about this that I want you to hear. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon once said, The condition of the church may be very accurately gauged by its prayer meetings. So is the prayer meaning a graceometer? And from it we may judge of the amount of divine working among a people. If God is near a church, it must pray. And if he's not there, one of the first tokens of his absence will be a slothfulness in prayer. Another Australian pastor said it this way. You can tell how popular a church is by who comes on Sunday morning. You can tell a popular pastor or evangelist is by who comes on Sunday night. But you can tell how popular Jesus is by who comes to prayer meeting. See, the American church has abandoned the idea of a prayer meeting. Why? Because nobody comes. Nobody comes. What does that tell us in light of those two quotes and in light of 2 Chronicles 7.14? Should we be surprised that the church in America has a lack of spiritual power? Should we be surprised that the church in America has almost zero influence? We, as the disciples of Jesus Christ, and a church that loves him, and this church loves the Lord, and a church that I pray will continue to live vertically for him, must be striving, listen now, for a fresh passion for prayer. And I want to give you some practical ways that we're going to do that. First, I want to make November at this church a month of prayer. We're going to have a strong emphasis on praying. It starts Thursday night. I want to encourage you, let's fill this room. Grab another believer. This is the one time I'll say, you can bring somebody from another church. If they love to pray, bring them. Because this is not about Harbor Rock, Tabernacle, other churches. This is about calling on the name of the Lord for an election that's going to change our future. So grab, hey, you love to pray? Come, we got prayer meeting Thursday night. In your bulletin, I believe, or somebody handed it to you, each of you received a prayer guide. Hold it up for me. You got it, right? You got this? My dad put these together when he was with Samaritan's Purse. Still is, actually. Start to fill it out. Start to put requests in here. Notice that there's a slot for the day that they're answered. Write it down. Be specific with the Lord. Start, start getting ready to pray. There are more in the lobby. You need more, I'll get you more. Get one for your kids. Have your kids start filling one out. Everybody should have one. Don't just, well, we got one for the family. Nope, you need to have one yourself. Number four, start to be bold and confident in prayer. Ask the Lord and expect the Lord to answer prayer. In fact, I think we should have an answered prayer wall in this church. We're going to use one of the bulletin boards. We're going to make an answered prayer wall. We did that during VBS. 
God answered that prayer. Look, God healed that person. God answered. He solved that marriage. He, he reconciled that couple. He brought that wayward child back home. We should have that on the wall. We should pray, number five, over the next nine days like we have never prayed before. The stakes have never been higher. Number six, I want you men to commit to leading your family in prayer three times a week during November. I'm not talking prayer at the meal. I'm talking actual, let's take time for requests, let's share praise, and let's have each person pray. I know our family is so busy, we miss that all the time. We've got to change that. Men, I'm pointing out us because it starts with us. We are responsible as the spiritual leaders of our family, not dictators, humble servant leaders. And this is where it starts. Our kids are watching us. They're learning from us. Ladies, here's your job. Begin to pray about who you can invite to the tea in December. I'd like to establish a goal that with every table we have in this room on, in December, that two to three women at least at each table are either unsaved or unchurched or both. And that God's going to work in a mighty that way that night and, 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 and save people. So start, use this prayer book. Here's the people I'm going to pray, I'm going to invite. I'm like, God, there's no way they're going to come. There's no way they'll say yes. But Lord, I'm going to pray about it. And I, and I need you to open their hearts. And then when that person says yes, and they will, write it down. Last, I want to get copies of this book. Many as we need. Fresh wind, fresh fire. How many of you have read this book? Put your hands up. About 10 of you. That's not enough. This book will change the way you think about prayer. I'm going to order a bunch of copies and we're going to have them out and we'll give them at a cheap price. 10 bucks. I don't care. I want you guys to read this book. If there's one book you're going to read between now and December, it's going to be this book. Beside the Bible. Why? Because we need to be stirred about prayer. Why? Because prayer will change our lives. Prayer will change our marriages. Prayer will change our families. And prayer will change our church. Let's ask God to stir us over the next month. And to be gracious in response. Just like he says he will. My people, here it is. I'm telling you the secret. If my people will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I'm going to hear I'm going to respond, and I'm going to heal. Let's believe him with his promise. Let's pray together.